Let's pray once again. Our Heavenly Father, we ask You to do this thing which we have just sung. We ask that You would open our eyes, that You would open our hearts, that we would see the glory of Christ, the beauty, in such a way that we would leave transformed and changed. We pray that Your Word would break us, that Your Word would speak to us, that Your Word would refresh us. For the sake of Your Son and for His glory, Amen. You may be seated. So just to give you a little context before we jump in here to John 14 through 16. This is Jesus and He's talking to His disciples. And what has happened in these first few of these chapters preceding what we just read, Jesus has washed His disciples' feet. He's instituted the Lord's Supper. He's given them the new commandment. This comes at the end of three years that Jesus has spent with His beloved disciples, that He has lived life with them, that He has laughed with them, that He has cried with them, that they have come to know Jesus and to love Him. They've seen Him do these mighty miracles, feeding the 5,000. They've seen Him heal Lazarus. They have known Jesus in an intimate way over these three years, and they have come to love Him. So now as they are in this upper room, Jesus tells His beloved friends that He is going away. That He is departing from them. That He is leaving them. And this hits the disciples like a ton of bricks. And you can see how Peter responds because you always know that Peter is going to be the first to respond. And so when Jesus says, I have to depart and you can't go with me, Peter's response is, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And not only does Peter respond, but Thomas and Philip cry out as well in chapter 14. Thomas asks, how will we know where you are going? In verse 4. And Philip asks for Jesus to show them the Father. And Jesus says, how can you have been with me for three years and not know me? See, Jesus tells them that He is leaving them, and this knocks the breath out of them. Have you ever experienced something like that in your life? When someone you love is leaving you, is departing, and it hits you like a ton of bricks, where the very breath is knocked out of you. Perhaps it's that sudden news when someone you love when a parent has died unexpectedly. Perhaps it's when you get the news that your spouse of 20 years tells you they no longer love you and walks out the door. Perhaps as a child, it's your parent. Perhaps if you're in the military, it's a spouse who's leaving for a tour for nine months or for several years and you know you won't see them for a little while. And if you haven't experienced any of those things yet in your life, and maybe you have even if you are a teenager, but it's that same feeling of if you're a teenager and you've just met the love of your life and you've dated her for all of two weeks and you are just absolutely convinced that you are going to spend the rest of your life with this 13-year-old girl that God has told you this, and then she breaks up with you. And it hits you like a ton of bricks. Or maybe it's that feeling of when you're a child and you have to give up your pacifier or your blanket for the first time. Or maybe it's that feeling that when you get lost in a mall, 
See, I grew up in a small town in East Tennessee. It was 20 minutes to a gas station. It was an hour to a grocery store. So it was a really big deal when we went to Walmart. So when we were at Walmart, I would get lost in all the aisles, especially the toy aisles, that I would forget to stay up with my parents. And after I just looked at the latest Transformers and G.I. Joes, all of a sudden I'd look up and mom and dad weren't around and that moment of panic would hit me. I'm an hour and a half away from home and I don't know where mom and dad is. It's that feeling in the gut of the disciples when they hear that their beloved friend, when Jesus is about to depart from them. And that is the context that Jesus says to his disciples. Have no fear. It's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. But I'm sending you the Helper, the Holy Spirit. Let's ask three questions this morning about the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? And how do we connect with the Holy Spirit? First question, who is the Holy Spirit? Well, in chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus calls Him the Helper. He calls Him the Spirit of Truth. He calls Him the Holy Spirit. Let me give you three quick points about who is the Holy Spirit. First, we can look at His title. He is holy. He is divine. He is the third member of the Godhead. To be holy means to be set apart. To be different. It's that picture in Isaiah chapter 6 when the holiness of God is revealed to Isaiah and he knows that he is in the presence of someone who is completely different from him. And he says, Woe unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He knows that he is in the presence of the divine. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit here another helper. There's two different words, two different Greek words for another. One means to be of the same substance, just alike. And one means to be different. Jesus used the one here that means of the same substance. He says another in that the Holy Spirit is just like me. He is divine. And we even see Jesus saying that I'm going to leave, but I'm going to come back. We will come back to you soon. He's not talking about His second coming. He's not talking about His return. But He and the Spirit are one so that when the Spirit comes and indwells the disciples at Pentecost, it is the Spirit of Christ. They are that tied together. They are the Godhead. And in verse 23, Jesus says, we will come to Him and make our home with Him. The Holy Spirit is not just mentioned here in John 14 through 16. If you were to turn back to the very first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, in the first few verses, you would see even the mention of the Holy Spirit there. He is eternal. It says when God created the heavens and the earth, the Spirit was hovering over the water. And they used the personal pronoun of plural, let us make man in our image. You see the Holy Spirit all throughout the Old Testament. You see the Holy Spirit guiding the people of Israel as they're wandering in the desert. You see the Spirit of the Lord indwell the temple in the Old Testament. You see King David reference him in Psalm 51 when he says, Do not take your spirit away from me, but restore unto me the joy of my salvation. You see the Spirit at the presence of the virgin birth. You see the Spirit's presence at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus when He descends on Jesus in the form of a dove. You see the Spirit drive Jesus into the desert for temptation. 
You see that it is the power of the Spirit that raises Jesus again from the dead. The Holy Spirit is eternal. The Holy Spirit is divine. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. Now let's look at the second part of his title, Spirit. Okay? Spirit means wind or breath or energy. When we think of spirit, we think of ghost. And that was the word that we used for spirit in the 16th century. So when we think of the Holy Ghost, we think of Casper. And that's just not true. Okay? So he's not talking about the immaterialness of the spirit. He's talking about the energy. He's talking about the active work of the spirit. This idea of wind or breath or motion. So the spirit conveys power energy and life. Sometimes it's a gentle breeze and sometimes it's really powerful. Like Micah 3.8 says, but as for me, I am filled with power and the Spirit of the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson calls the Holy Spirit the overwhelming, violent energy of God. It is God's irresistible power. So, He is Spirit. He has active engagement with His creation in a personal way third point about who the Spirit is. He is a person. In John 15, 26, Jesus says, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness of me. It does not say it will bear witness of me. The Spirit is a person, not a principle, not the force like in Star Wars, not a work or an influence But the Spirit is a distinct person. And that's why there are attributes attributed to Him as a person in the New Testament. It says we can grieve the Holy Spirit. It says we can quench the Holy Spirit. It says that we can lie to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. He is a person. So who is the Holy Spirit? He is a divine, active person carrying out the designs of the Father and applying the benefits of the Son to all His people. So second question we want to ask from this text is this. So what does the Holy Spirit do? A lot. I'd originally had about ten points under this to tell you all the things the Holy Spirit does that we can pull out of even just these three chapters. That He convicts us of sin. That He indwells us. He teaches us. He guides us. He empowers us. He confirms us. And He loves us. But the thing that I want to impress upon you this morning is the one word that Jesus used repeatedly in these few chapters. It's the word helper. To bear witness. The primary job description of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness about Jesus Christ. He is to testify to the gospel of good news. He is to draw attention to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what His main role is to do. If you have a version other than the ESV that you're reading from, you may use a different word to translate this word helper. You may read encourager. You may read um, helper or comforter or advocate or counselor. It's difficult to convey the meaning of the Greek word paraclete in simply one English word. It's too rich. Paraclete is the Greek word. Para means to come alongside of. And clete comes from the Greek word kaleo, 
which means to call. But you never heard Greek with a southern accent before. So James always makes fun of that for me. Kaleo means to call or argue, or if it was the Scottish version, to give good chat. So the Holy Spirit's role, it says, is to come alongside of you and to argue with your soul, to give you good chat. He is our advocate. It's this idea of an attorney. What does an attorney do? He argues with us, okay? So he says he's another advocate. So we have the first advocate, which we'll talk about in a minute, who is Jesus, who is our advocate in heaven with the Father. But God sends another advocate, the Holy Spirit, to argue with us, to convince us of what? Look at verse 18 in chapter 14. It says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The Holy Spirit's role is to be an advocate, a helper, an encourager, an exhorter to your own soul to convince you that you are loved, that you are adopted into the family of God, that you are sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the host of hosts, that you don't relate to Him simply as a sovereign, as a judge, or as a ruler, but the Spirit enables you to cry out, Daddy. You see, you can be legally adopted without experiencing adopted or living with the implications of being adopted into a family. Let me illustrate this for you from a man named Russell Moore. He wrote a book called Adopted for Life, which outlines the story of his and his wife, uh, Maria, in adopting two children from Russia. Russell, he is a theologian, a preacher, and recently became the president of the Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. But in Adopted for Life, he tells a story about he and his wife going to Russia to adopt their two sons. Let me read from his words. He says, Maria and I went to Russia and back twice to accomplish a task, to complete a long paper trail that would bring us to the legal custody of our sons. Along with that, however, it jolted us with the truth of an adoption more ancient, more veiled, but just as real, our own. He says, when Maria and I first walked into the orphanage, where we were led to the boys the Russian courts had picked out for us to adopt, we almost vomited in reaction to the stench and squalor of the place. The boys were in cribs, in the dark, lying in their own waste. And leaving them at the end of each day was painful. But leaving them the final day, before going home to wait for the paperwork to go through, was the hardest thing either of us had ever done. Walking out of the room to prepare for the plane ride home, Maria and I could hear Maxim calling out for us and falling down in his crib, convulsing in tears. Maria shook with tears of her own. I turned around to walk back into their room just for a minute. I placed my hand on both of their heads and said, knowing they couldn't understand a word of English, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I don't think I consciously intended to cite Jesus' words to his disciples in John 14, 18. It just seemed like the only thing worth saying at the time. For us, it didn't matter that they seemed like any other orphan in that institution. They were a part of our family now. We knew them. We loved them. We claimed them. And it didn't matter that for the next several weeks, they'd still be called Maxim and Sergei. And fast-forwarding in the story several weeks later, 
He says, when Maria and I at long last received the phone call that the legal process was over and we returned to Russia to pick up our new sons, we found that their transition from orphanage to family was more difficult than we had supposed. We dressed the boys in outfits our parents had bought for them. We nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked out into the sunlight to the terror of the two boys. They'd never seen the sun and they'd never felt the wind. They had never heard the sound of a car door slamming or felt like they were being carried along a road at a hundred miles an hour. I noticed that they were shaking and reaching back to the orphanage in the distance. Suddenly, it wasn't a stranger asking, are they brothers? They seemed to be asking it, non-verbally but emphatically about themselves. I whispered to Sergei, now Timothy, that place is a pit. If you only knew what's waiting for you, a home with a mommy and a daddy who love you, grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and playmates and McDonald's Happy Meals. (laughs) But all they knew was the orphanage. It was squalid, but they had no other reference point. It was home. We knew the boys had acclimated to our home, that they trusted us when they stopped hiding food in their high chairs. They knew there would be another meal coming, and they wouldn't have to fight for the scraps. This was the new normal. They are now thoroughly Americanized, perhaps too much so, so able to recognize the sound of a microwave ding from 40 yards away. I still remember, though, those little hands reaching for the orphanage, and I see myself there. The New Testament teaching on the adoption of believers in Christ isn't a reassuring metaphor for the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man. Adoption doesn't simply tell us who we are. It is a legal entitlement. One, we are prone to forget. You see, we're legally adopted into the family of God. But it takes a while for us to believe that. It takes a while for that to work its way into our soul so that we live differently. If we know what is waiting for us in the new heavens and the new earth, we will live generously. We will not hoard our food, our possessions, our things. If we are convinced of our familial position and to the family of God, it changes us in such a way. And this is the role of the Holy Spirit to be an advocate to our own souls. Listen to Romans chapter 8, 15 through 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified in Him. When you don't feel loved or forgiven or guilty, the Holy Spirit is working to make sure that that truth travels from your heart or from your brain to your heart. One theologian said this, Satan knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. God knows your sin, but he calls you by your name. And the Holy Spirit's role is to convince you that God loves you 
and your name is Jesus. And he doesn't treat you as if your sins deserve. He treats you as your older brother deserves. And he deserves everything. So what does the Spirit do? He doesn't whisper to you, you know what, you are a lousy Christian. You're pretty horrible, this whole Christian thing. Do you know what he whispers to your soul? He says, I love you, and don't worry, it was never based on your performance, so you can never, ever lose my love. I'm not mad at you. He convinces your soul of your adoption into the family of God. He makes salvation effectual in our lives. That's why in Hebrews 12, when Paul or whoever the writer of Hebrews is writing and he's arguing with these believers who are struggling in the midst of suffering, he says, have you forgotten the word of exhortation that addresses you as sons? Have you forgot your place in the family of God? Or 1 John 3.20 says, when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. The Holy Spirit argues and pounds your heart with the gospel until you know and believe that you are loved and adopted into the family of God so that you can grasp the height, the depth, and the breadth of the love of God. It's amazing. So let's look at this final question. How do we connect to the Holy Spirit if His role is that important in our lives? I want you to look in chapter 16 at verse 7 and to be stunned as I was when I read this. Jesus' writing says, or speaking says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Do you realize this is Jesus, God incarnate, who's been walking around with His disciples, who has been feeding the 5,000, who has been healing blindness, who has raised Lazarus from the dead, who has preached this incredible sermon. And He says, it is to your advantage if I go away. He says, you've been with me for three years, but if you really want to know me, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. How many of us have ever said, you know what, if I, was li- if I was living during that time and Jesus did those miracles in front of me, I would believe. You know what, there were many who saw those miracles who didn't believe. Or we say, if I lived in the Old Testament, if I was with Moses and I saw all these great miracles, then I would believe. Do you know what Jesus says here? He says, you have greater access to the Father than Moses, than David, than Peter, than Paul, than James, and all of these disciples. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you can know God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in such a profound way, more so than any who have lived before you in the history of redemption. So then the question becomes, How? How can we know God in this real way? Four ways that you can connect to the Holy Spirit. Know your sin. Know the first advocate, Jesus. Know the Word. Know each other. Know the church. First way that we connect to the Holy Spirit. Acknowledge your sin. John 16, 8-11 says He has come to convict the world of guilt. No one can receive the Holy Spirit 
can receive Christ unless you first know the bad news that you are sinful, that you are a sinner. And somewhere deep down inside of you, you know that you are not enough. You know that you don't love your spouse the way that you ought to. You know that you lie. You know that you're angry. You know that you're bitter. You know that you're lust. And if you don't think you're any of those things, then you're full of pride. And that's the worst thing that there is. If you feel a tug on your heart, a heaviness of your sin, that's the Holy Spirit convicting you of your guilt and bringing conviction. When the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter preached this incredible sermon and it says they were cut to the heart and said, brothers, what must we do to be saved? Do you know how to connect to the Spirit? Feel your sin. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, I've already felt that. I'm a Christian. I felt that a long time ago. Christian, do you know one of the ways it keeps you from connecting to the Spirit? It's because you're not listening to the commandments of Jesus. You're not walking in love. You're living in sin. The more that you sin, the more that you rebel, moves you away from the Spirit having His way in your life. You know, in Psalm 51, it's after David's sin with Bathsheba, after committing adultery, and he says, Do not take your spirit away from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Why do we confess our sins every week? It's not so you'll walk out of here saying, Oh man, I'm really bad. No, we confess our sins so that joy would return. When you become a Christian, your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. So when you confess your sins every week, It's not that God somehow forgot and you have to make sure you name all your sins. It's so that you can experience forgiveness. That you can know that you are forgiven. That brings us to the second thing. You have to acknowledge your sin, but you need to receive. You have to know Jesus. You have to receive the first advocate. He calls Jesus another helper. Do you know the first helper? In John 16.10, he says, For our righteousness... Jesus goes to the Father. That same word of the Holy Spirit, advocate, paraclete, is used of Jesus in 1 John chapter 2. He says, if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father. See, Jesus is our first advocate. He represents us before God in heaven. And what does He say to God the Father? You know what? He doesn't plead mercy. He doesn't say, hey, you know what, David's a pretty good guy and I know he's messed up a few times. Can you overlook one more thing? Do you know what the first advocate says? He says, I was born, I lived, and I died, and I rose again, and I paid for David's sins, and you are a just God. And so because of that, he deserves everything that I deserve. And you know what James preached on last week? He preached that we cannot cry out that Jesus is Lord unless the Spirit gives us the ability to cry out that Jesus is Lord. Christian, if you know Christ, you have the Spirit. To have the Spirit is to have Christ. You cannot have one without the other. You see, when you are convicted of sin, you can do one of two things. You can say, I'm so guilty, I'm so full of sin that I could never go to the Father. 
But do you know what the Holy Spirit says? I am so guilty. I am so full of sin that I have no choice, no other place but to go to the Father. So how do you connect to the Spirit? Know your sin. Know your first advocate. And then the third way is get in the truth. He's called the Spirit of Truth. And we know that the Holy Spirit authored the Bible as in 2 Peter 1 it says, No prophecy of Scripture came about, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You want to be filled with the Spirit? Fill yourself with the Word of God. It's the same voice. You see, if the Spirit is simply a force, then when you meditate, you're going to empty your mind. But to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the Word. To be dominated by the Spirit is to be dominated by the Word. That you absorb the Word in such a way that it becomes living and active. You see, the Spirit and the Word are never ever going to contradict each other. How many times have I heard, I know the Bible says, I know the Word of God says this, but God would want me to be happy, so I'm going to do this. And it's something completely contrary to the Word of God. The Spirit will never, ever, ever contradict anything in the Word of God. To be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the Word of God. And the last way that we connect with the Holy Spirit is to connect to one another. It says to abide in Christ. Do you realize that most of the instructions about the Holy Spirit in the Bible are a reference to believers and to the church? It means that we connect to the Spirit through the preaching of the Word, through the sacraments, through baptism and the Lord's Supper. We connect to the Spirit because you have that Spirit indwelling in you and you can speak to me words of truth and light when I am in darkness and when I am believing lies because Satan is the father of lies. The Holy Spirit speaks to us from one another, assuring us that we are loved. And He gives us signs and seals and sacraments. You want to connect to the Spirit? Show up on Sundays. You want to connect to the Spirit? Care about one another. You want to feel the Spirit working in your life? Get involved in a home fellowship group. And Carolyn didn't ask me to give that plug. (laughs) Let me just close with this illustration. You see, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit another comforter. Just a few weeks ago, we took away my two-year-old's first comfort, his pacifier. He had his first dentist visit, and the dentist told him that he needed to lose the pacifier so his jaw and his teeth could develop properly. And so we were weighing how we were going to take away this comfort, this pacifier with him. And in this word from the Lord on that same night, we had this brilliant idea that he had been asking to sleep in the bunk beds with his older brother. So we told him, if you lose the pacifier, you can keep the bee, that's his blanket, you can keep puppy, that's his puppy dog, but you've got to lose the pacifier and you can sleep on the bottom bunk with your older brother, Graham. So he said, man up. And he did. <laughs> so that, that very night, he agreed. He left his pacifier and he went to sleep in the room with his older brother on the bottom bunk. And he cried out the first time and I went in there and I tried to comfort him and Kelly and I stood outside the door and then he started crying out again for Graham and for Mommy and Daddy and then I had this brilliant idea. I went in the second time and I went and spoke to his older brother Graham who's four. I said, when you hear Hudson cry out, Gray, Gray, Graham, this is what I want you to say. I want you to say, hey Hudson, I'm up here. Mommy and Daddy are upstairs and we love you so you can rest. That's what the Holy Spirit does. 
for us. Another comforter, as in John says in 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for sending another comforter, this Holy Spirit, who is an advocate to our own soul, to our own mind, that condemns us at times, that cries out that we are guilty, that we are not loved, that we are outside the family of God. Father, I pray for any of us here this morning who are lacking assurance of faith, of being in the family of God, that this day your Holy Spirit might assure us might comfort us that we are loved, that we are accepted, that we are yours. In Jesus' name.